Section 8 of Letters of Mrs. Adams, Volume 1, by Charles Francis Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Section 8, The Letters, 1775, Part 3. Braintree, 25 July, 1775. To John Adams. Dearest friend, I received yours of July 7th for which I heartily thank you. It was the longest and best letter I have had, the most leisurely, and therefore the most sentimental. Previous to your last, I had written you and made some complaints of you, but I will take them all back again. Only continue your obliging favors whenever your time will allow you to devote one moment to your absent Portia. This is the 25th of July, Gage has not made any attempts to march out since the battle at Charlestown. Our army is restless and wish to be doing something to rid themselves and the land of the vermin and locusts which infest it. Since I wrote you last, the company stationed upon the coast, both in this town, Weymouth and Hingham, were ordered to Nantasket to reap and bring off the grain, which they accomplished, all except a field or two which was not ripe. And having whale-boats, they undertook to go to the lighthouse and set fire to it, which they effected in open day and in fair sight of several men of war. Upon their return came down upon them eight barges, one cutter, and one schooner, all in battle array, and poured whole broadsides upon them, but our men all reached the shore, and not one life lost, two only slightly wounded in their legs. They marched up a hill, and drew into order, in hopes the marines would land, but they chose rather to return without a land engagement, though tis thought they will burn the town down as soon as our forces leave it. I had this account from Captain Vinton, who with his company were there. These little skirmishes seem trifling, but they serve to inure our men and harden them to danger. I hear the rebels are very wroth at the destruction of the lighthouse. There has been an offer from Gage to send the poor of Boston to Salem by water, but not complied with on our part. They returned for answer they would receive them upon the lines. Dr. Tuft saw a letter from Deacon Newell in which he mentions the death of John Cotton. He says it is very sickly in town. Every fishing vessel is now obliged to enter and clear out as though she was going to a foreign voyage. No inhabitant is suffered to partake, but obliged to wait till the army is supplied. And then, if one remains, they are allowed to purchase it. An order has been given out in town that no person shall be seen to wipe his face with a white handkerchief. The reason I hear is that it is a signal of mutiny. General Burgoyne lives in Mr. Sam Quincy's house. A lady who lived opposite says she saw raw meat cut and hacked upon her mahogany tables and her superb damask curtain and cushions exposed to the rain as if they were of no value. How much better do the Tories fare than the Whigs? I suppose this worthy good man was put in with all confidence that nothing should be hurt. 
I was very much pleased with General Lee's letter, and really entertained a more favorable opinion of Burgoyne than I before had imbibed from his speech. But a late letter from London, written to Mr. Josiah Quincy, and in case of his absence, to be opened either by you or Mr. Samuel Adams, or either of the Warrens, has left me no room to think that he is possessed either of generosity, virtue, or humanity. His character runs thus, quote, As to Burgoyne, I am not master of language sufficient to give you a true idea of the horrible wickedness of the man. His designs are dark, his dissimulation of the deepest dye, for not content with deceiving mankind, he practices deceit on God himself by assuming the appearance, like Hutchison, of great attention to religious worship, when every action of his life is totally abhorrent to all ideas of true religion, virtue, or common honesty. An abandoned, infamous gambler of broken fortune, and the worst and most detestable of the Bedford gang, who are wholly bent on blood, tyranny, and spoil, and therefore the darling favorite of our unrivaled ruler, Lord Bute. End quote. Note, much allowance must occasionally be made for the excitement naturally growing out of the circumstances of the war. General Burgoyne by no means bore any such character as this. The character of Howe is not drawn much more favorably, but Clinton's general character very good, and tis said he does not relish the service he is sent upon. I am ready to believe this of Clinton, as I have never heard of any speeches of his since his arrival, nor scarcely any mention of him. That such characters as Burgoyne and Howe should engage in such a cause is not to be wondered at, but it really is to be lamented when a man possessed of one spark of virtue should be drawn aside and disgrace himself and posterity by adding one more to the already infamous list. I suppose you have heard of Derby's arrival and the intelligence he brings. I could not refrain wishing them everlasting fetters. Quote, the news received with some symptoms of pleasure and quote, our friends increased and a few more such sugar plums. Were they suffering as we are, could Americans sit thus coldly while Britons were bleeding? How is it possible that the love of gain and the lust of domination should render the human mind so callous to every principle of honor, generosity, and benevolence? May that day be far distant from America when trade's unfeeling train shall usurp this land and dispossess the swain. Ill fares the land to hastening ills a prey, where wealth accumulates and men decay. Princes and lords may flourish or may fade, a breath can make them as a breath has made, but a bold peasantry their country's pride, when once destroyed, can never be supplied. Your address meets with general approbation here. Your petitioning the king again pleases, forgive me if I say the timid and the weak, 
those persons who were esteemed the lukewarm, and who think no works of supererogation can be performed to Great Britain, whilst others say you heap coals of fire upon the heads of your enemies. You know you are considered here as a most perfect body. If one member is by any means rendered incapable of acting, tis supposed the deficiency will be made up. The query is why your president left the Congress so long as to make it necessary to choose another member, whether he declined returning to you again. I suppose you have a list of our council. It was generally thought that Gage would make an attempt to come out, either election day or upon the fast, but I could not believe we should be disturbed upon that day. Even the devils believe and tremble, and I really believe they are more afraid of the Americans' prayers than of their swords. I could not bear to hear our inanimate old bachelor. Mrs. Cranch and I took our chaise and went to hear Mr. Haven of Dedham, and we had no occasion to repent eleven miles' ride, especially as I had the pleasure of spending the day with my namesake and sister-delegate. Note Mrs. Samuel Adams. Why should we not assume your titles when we give you up our names? I found her comfortably situated in a little country cottage, with patience, perseverance, and fortitude for her companions, and in better health than she has enjoyed for many months past. I fear General Thomas being overlooked, and Heath placed over him, will create much uneasiness. I know not who was to blame, but it is likely to make a great and fatal gap in the army. If Thomas resigns, all his officers resign, and Mr. Thomas cannot with honor hold under Heath. The camp will evince to every eye how good an officer he has been. But this is out of my sphere. I only say what others say, and what the general disposition of the people is. I need not say how much I want to see you, but no one will credit my story of your returning in a month. I hope to have the best of proofs to convince them. I cannot need any to convince you how sincerely I am your affectionate Portia. Braintree, 31 July, 1775, to John Adams. I do not feel easy more than two days together without writing to you. If you abound, you must lay some of the fault upon yourself, who have made such sad complaints for letters. But I really believe I have written more than all my sister delegates. There is nothing new transpired since I wrote you last, but the sailing of some transports, and five deserters having come into our camp. One of them is gone, I hear, to Philadelphia. I think I should be cautious of him. No one can tell the secret designs of such fellows whom no oath binds. He may be sent with assassinating designs. I can credit any villainy that a Caesar Borgia would have been guilty of, or Satan himself would rejoice in. Those who do not scruple to bring poverty, misery, slavery, and death upon thousands will not hesitate at the most diabolical crimes and this is Britain. Blush, O oh Americans, that ever you derived your origin from such a race. We learn from one of these deserters that our ever-valued friend, Warren, 
dear to us even in death, was not treated with any more respect than a common soldier, but the savage wretches called officers consulted together and agreed to sever his head from his body and carry it in triumph to Gage, who no doubt would have grinned horribly a ghastly smile instead of imitating Caesar, who far from being gratified with so horrid a spectacle as the head even of his enemy, turned away from Pompey's with disgust and gave vent to his pity in a flood of tears. How much does pagan tenderness put Christian benevolence to shame? What humanity could not obtain, the rites and ceremonies of a mason demanded. An officer, who it seems was one of the brotherhood, requested that, as a mason, he might have the body unmangled and find a decent interment for it. He obtained his request, but upon returning to secure it, he found it already thrown into the earth, only with the ceremony of being first placed there with many bodies over him. Nor writ his name, whose tomb should pierce the skies, glows my resentment into guilt. What guilt can equal violations of the dead? The dead, how sacred! Sacred is the dust of this heaven-labored form, erect, divine, this heaven-assumed majestic robe of earth. 2 August. Thus far I wrote and broke off. Hearing there was a probability of your return, I thought not to send it. But the reception of yours this morning of July 23rd makes me think the day further off than I hoped. I therefore will add a few lines, though very unfit. I went out yesterday to attend the funeral of the poor fellow who, the night before, fell in battle as they were returning from the lighthouse. I caught some cold. Sabbath evening there was a warm fire from Prospect Hill and Bunker's Hill, begun first by the riflemen taking off their guard. Two men upon our side were killed, five of their guards were killed, two taken. I believe my account will be very confused, but I will relate it as well as I am able. Sabbath evening a number of men in whaleboats went off from Squantum and Dorchester to the lighthouse, where the general gauge had again fixed up a lamp, and sent twelve carpenters to repair it. Our people went on amidst a hot fire from thirty marines, who were placed there as a guard to the Tory carpenters, burnt the dwelling-house, took the Tories and twenty-eight marines, killed the lieutenant and one man, brought off all the oil and stores which were sent without the loss of a man, until they were upon their return, when they were so closely pursued that they were obliged to run one whaleboat ashore and leave her to them. The rest arrived safe, except the unhappy youth, whose funeral I yesterday attended, who received a ball through the temple as he was rowing the boat. He belonged to Rhode Island. His name was Griffin. He, with four wounded Marines, were brought by Captain Turner to Germantown, and buried from there with the honors of war. Mr. Wybird, upon the occasion, made the best oration— he never prays, you know, I ever heard from him. The poor wounded fellows, who were all wounded in their arms, desired they might attend. They did, and he very pathetically addressed them, with which they appeared affected. I spoke with them. 
I told them it was very unhappy that they should be obliged to fight their best friends. They said they were sorry. They hoped in God an end would be speedily put to the unhappy contest. When they came, they came in the way of their duty to relieve Admiral Montague with no thought of fighting, but their situation was such as obliged them to obey orders. But they wished with all their souls that they that sent them here had been in the heat of the battle, expressed gratitude at the kindness they received, and said in that they had been deceived, for they were told if they were taken alive they would be sacrificed by us. Dr. Tufts dressed their wounds. I had a design to write something about a talked-of appointment of a friend of mine to a judicial department, but hope soon to see that friend before his acceptance may be necessary. Note, Mr. Adams was made Chief Justice of the State Court, but never acted in that capacity. I enclose a compliment, copied by a gentleman from a piece in the Worcester paper, signed Lycurgus. I can add no more, as the good Colonel Palmer waits. Only my compliments to Mrs. Mifflin, and tell her I do not know whether her husband is safe here. Bologna and Cupid have a contest about him. You hear nothing from the ladies but about Major Mifflin's easy address, politeness, complacence, etc. Tis well he has so agreeable a lady at Philadelphia. They know nothing about forts, entrenchments, etc. when they return, or if they do, they are all forgotten and swallowed up in his accomplishments. Adieu, my dearest friend, and always believe me, unalterably yours, Portia. Weymouth, 1 October, 1775, to John Adams. Have pity upon me. Have pity upon me, O thou my beloved, for the hand of God presseth me sore. Yet will I be dumb and silent, and not open my mouth, because thou, O Lord, hast done it. How can I tell you, O my bursting heart, that my dear mother has left me? This day, about five o'clock, she left this world for an infinitely better after sustaining sixteen days' severe conflict, nature fainted, and she fell asleep. Blessed spirit, where art thou? At times I am almost ready to faint under this severe and heavy stroke, separated from thee, who used to be a comforter to me in affliction. But blessed be God, his ear is not heavy, that he cannot hear. But he has bid us call upon him in time of trouble, I know you are a sincere and hearty mourner with me, and will pray for me in my affliction. My poor father, like a firm believer and good Christian, sets before his children the best of examples of patience and submission. My sisters send their love to you, and are greatly afflicted. You often expressed your anxiety for me when you left me before, surrounded with terrors, but my trouble then was as the small dust in the balance compared to what I have since endured. I hope to be properly mindful of the correcting hand, that I may not be rebuked in anger. You will pardon and forgive all my wanderings of mind. I cannot be correct. Tis a dreadful time, with the whole province, 
Sickness and death are in almost every family. I have no more shocking and terrible idea of any distemper except the plague than this. Almighty God, restrain the pestilence which walketh in darkness and wasteth at noonday, and which has laid in the dust one of the dearest of parents. May the life of the other be lengthened out to his afflicted children. From your distressed Portia. End of section 8